So chapter 10. I think we're around verse 22. Yes, <clears throat> looks right. I'm going to start with Shima, Lin, okay. Shalina. Sorry. <laughs> I had a student by the name of Shima Lin, and you can't believe how confused I get between you two. Uh, <laughs> Shalina, would you read verses 22? Why don't you just read the rest of the chapter? I think for continuity's sake, that's better. Okay. <clears throat> now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked into the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, you, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, quotes, and the scripture cannot be broken, end quote. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe, that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to a place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but the things that John spoke about this man are true. And many believed in him there. Any questions or comments? What is the Feast of Dedication? Excellent. That has to do with the Maccabean Revolt and when the temple was restored. You know what the Maccabean Revolt is? No. no, 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 no. <laughs> during, <clears throat> during the uh, Hellenistic period, mm -hmm. remember Alexander the Great conquered the world, mm -hmm. the, the, the Middle Eastern world uh, uh, and into Europe. He conquered the world, and then he, uh, and he conquered Jerusalem, of course. Uh, he died. And four generals uh, took over the kingdom, mm -hmm. and they parceled it out. Okay. I think, actually, Alexander the Great parceled it out among them before he died. So they, par they had these, uh, the kingdom split up into four parcels, and um, everything was fine until the arrival of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And he decided to Hellenize the Jews. Uh, so he persecuted them. He wouldn't let them circumcise their children. He, would, he forced them to eat pork. Um, he desecrated their temple, uh, and, and on and on. And 
there were factions in Jerusalem. Some factions said, let's be Hellenistic. Let's, let's forget our past. Um, and another faction said, no, we will fight. Mm-hmm. And there was a family of, of, from Matthias, Matthias, I think it's actually how you pronounce it. Uh, no, Matthias is the Hebrew. Who he had, he had several sons, and they rose up in revolt against this oppressive power. And eventually were able to conquer it and overthrow it. At least the Jews were in part. Uh, and uh, they uh, then restored everything, cleansed the temple mm-hmm. and restored worship. Did I get that right, Peter? Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. going by a hazy memory. <laughs> no, that's pretty good. Uh, you know, it's interesting because the, um, the whole story of the Maccabeans uh, is found in the Apocrypha, which right. we know is non-canonical, but boy, it sure does fit. Yeah, you know when I've read that, then you compare the only, it to scripture. The only scripture. only fourth Maccabees is not probably a valid history. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's uh, on a little sensational version of of the Maccabeans, but uh, the rest of the Maccabees, first and second and third Maccabees, are pretty substantial history. The reason they're not considered canonical is because they teach certain things that are not in harmony with the rest of scripture, such as uh, earning salvation by works and things like that. But they're good They're good for reading, for filling in the gap between Malachi and Matthew. Okay. Uh, or between, maybe better yet, between Nehemiah and Matthew. <laughs> so, what other questions or comments do you have about this? When did Jesus tell them that he was the Messiah, plainly. There's so many things in the last chapters that could be interpreted like that. <laughs> it can be interpreted, but when did he say, I am the Messiah, quote? Didn't he already say, okay. I am who I am? Yeah, but, but that depends on whether you think the Messiah is God. He said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing myself. I am he, what is I am he? Is that God? Is that the Messiah? <laughs> is verse 30 where he says, I and the Father are one? Uh, and that still, is he uh, saying there. I'm God? But is he saying I'm the Messiah? See, this, this, uh, this oh, it addresses an underlying tension that is between Jesus and the Jews. And that tension is, he claims to be God. Mm-hmm. He's made that clear. Yeah. In John 8, I am who I am. Or, yeah, or before Abraham was, I am. He, he makes it very clear. Mm-hmm. What he doesn't say directly is that he's the Messiah, except to his disciples. Well, because their, their interpretation of the Messiah was... Their, and that's the crux. Their interpretation of the Messiah is not that he's God, but that he's this super king who's going to rule with force and drive out the Romans and make everybody righteous. Mm -hmm. So, he hasn't, in their way of thinking, he has not told them he's the Messiah. Unless it leaked out from his disciples. (laughs) (laughs) But again, they want to kill him. Stone him. Well, to to say that you are God, when they think of him as a mere mortal. A carpenter's son. don't, Don't tell us that. That is blasphemy. So that's that's what leads them. He's uh, so Jesus in thirty four, 
is uh, verse 34 is quoting scripture which uh, is referring to Psalms 82 82 verse 6 it says yes and the scripture cannot be broken is that what you're talking about oh you I have said you are God's not blaspheming any more than Psalm 82 6 Jesus, Jesus has an interesting way of defending himself, doesn't he? He, he, he always flips it back onto he, them. He flips it onto them and says, okay, looking at it through your eyes, I, I'm not blaspheming. The psalm says, I said to you, you're gods. So you're gods. So you're not blaspheming. You say you're God. Does Jesus really believe that? He's just using their argument against them. He's just showing that their their argument's faulty. Well, it is interesting. This happens right after the whole discourse of the shepherd and shepherds yeah. and the good sheep, right? Mm-hmm. And what I find astounding is the shepherd. I don't think of King Cyrus, a Persian, as a shepherd, and yet the Lord referred to Cyrus as a shepherd. Well, that's in the in the remember in the heritage of the ancient Near East, where kings were shepherds. That is the the definition of the the metaphor for king is shepherd, and the people are reduced to sheep. Sheep. And Cyrus was anointed. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we on this at the Jews. Anointed the king. All kings were anointed in in Judaism. So so God is establishing Cyrus as a Jewish king. And he's a Persian. Yeah. And where is that? Isaiah 44? Isaiah 45, maybe 40. It's 45, I think. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue the nations before him, to strip kings of their armor. But, it, but the verse on the shepherd is in actually 44, you're right. Um, so who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and will accomplish all that I please. You will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundation be laid. Do you understand that, that Cyrus came the closest to representing the way God runs his universe? Yeah, of anybody in the ancient era. Like, he was uh, he believed in religious freedom and tolerance. Mm-hmm. So he allowed every it wasn't just that the Jews could go back and rebuild their temple. Every other mm-hmm. person taken in Babylonian captivity could go back and rebuild their temple and reestablish their religion and live in peace and harmony. They only had to pay taxes and kind of be loosely under under uh, Cyrus's control. So he had uh, the closest you can come to in the ancient world uh, to the kind of government God would run. Demo- well, maybe not a democracy quite yet, but certainly religious freedom, pluralism, if you will which uh, we don't see again <laughs> in any ancient part of the world until Roger Williams establishes Rhode Island. Mm. Which I, I don't want to talk about that because I have family history there. <laughs> but <laughs> my, I grew up with the understanding that my ancestor John Sheldon came over from England to help Roger Williams. And everything we know about John Sheldon uh, suggests that that's not true. I mean, that that is true, and that that's not untrue. And we don't have evidence directly supporting that it's true, but we 
There's no evidence against <laughs> supporting that is true. So I'm, I'm very partial to this topic of, of religious freedom. It's kind of in my DNA. That God runs a universe where he doesn't say, okay, I'm God and there is no other. And not only shall you not worship any other gods, but I'm going to enforce it. He's not that kind of God. But the Jews believed he was. And, and you notice, um, speaking about the shepherd and the sheep, in verse 25, he refers back to this, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. That's our Lord telling it straight out, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's wow. the truth, though. I mean, well, in the metaphor before, he said that my sheep know my voice. Like, like what we talked about last week, that there may be another flock that's in there that isn't his flock. Yeah. Let's talk about the sheep for a while. The, who are the sheep that aren't of his flock? What characterizes them? They do not hear his voice. And so what does that mean? What is that net? What are the outcomes of that? Whose voice? Sheep listen to a voice, don't they? I mean, what happens when there's no shepherd? <laughs> Poor sheep. They don't know where to go, right? Yes. So, if there's, if, if, if Jesus talks about several kinds of people in chapter ten, you remember I talked about this last week. You have the thief or the robber. Mm -hmm. You have the hireling or the hired hand, Amen. and then you have the good shepherd. So, presumably, the sheep who are not of the good shepherd are of the hireling, or the hired hand, and or the thief. So what would characterize the sheep of the thief? But the sheep do not hear them. Oh, well, that's for the good sheep. Hmm. They would be scarred. They, they would be abused, yes. What kind of sheep are willing to let a thief call them out, drive them out? Those that don't agree with it, or those don't. Remember John ten ten. This is what characterizes the difference. Uh, the thief. Well, first of all, nine. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me shall be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. They have freedom. The thief comes in only to steal, kill, and destroy. They don't have freedom. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. So what is the nature of sheep that are willing to lose their freedom and be coerced by the thief and destroyed? Let's think about the Jewish nation. Let's stay away from the church for now. Let's think about the Jewish nation. What kind of people are willing to let a thief or a robber coerce them? Willing to give up their freedom and let the thieves and robbers dictate to them what they do. It reminds me of when they wanted a king. Like they, yeah. they essentially had this like. Yeah, it goes back to that, doesn't it? At least. Yeah. They have this like egalitarian type of society. Maybe not that, but they just had a very. Um, it was just maybe a prophet that would just give them instruction every now and then, but they didn't have someone that was controlling them. Why would they want someone who's controlling them? To be like the other nations. To be like the, uh, Why would they want to be like the other nations? 
I mean, they, it feels like they can't deal with the freedom. Like they, they don't, they don't like it. Let's go back to how old were you in 2001? I'm not going to ask Peter that question. <laughs> you mean September 11, 2001? <laughs> yes, I mean September uh, I was like 11. Eight or nine. You were eight or nine. Yeah, okay. Seven. Then you probably heard something about 9 11. Do you remember what happened in the wake of that? Hmm. Or even before that, you probably don't remember the election of yeah, 2010. Yeah, oh, you mean 2000? Uh, yeah, yeah, 2000, yeah, sorry. Yeah. 2000. Mm. This is a rigged election. Yeah. Very familiar sounding. Uh, every 10 <laughs> years, <laughs> or every 16 <laughs> years, 15 years. So... It seems to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that at least one of the reasons we were willing to have a certain person in the White House is because we lacked security. We didn't feel safe. And we were willing to sell freedom and use coercion to protect ourselves. Well put, a continual unseen modus operandi utilized by Satan. We would not have a document known as the Patriot Act without that terror that yeah, occurred. Yeah, that's so true. We would not have those pieces of freedoms removed if it not had been for that event. Planned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was pushed through so quickly. So this is the sheep who are frightened. The frightened sheep. Uh, what about the sheep who um, are with the hireling? Hireling sticks around as long as all's good. When the wolf comes, he runs away. What kind of sheep would be willing to stick with the hireling? Seems good. Okay. As well at first. The Looks gullible, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> Looks good on the surface, but when uh-oh happens and danger comes and he's gone, now what? So maybe those I just don't inspect or like dig really deep. Or maybe they don't want surface. Yeah, very surface. Surface thinkers. Or maybe they don't want to be with the robber. So they choose. This is the second best. Yeah. (laughs) We don't know what the real thing is, but we'll take the second best. We're going to be revisiting these questions when we come to chapter 11. But I want to bring you to a larger issue that really concerns chapter 11, but which is dealt with here. This thing of belief. I have a book in my library, and it's written by Stephen somebody or other, and I never can remember names, so I'm terrible at this one. (laughs) Um, But um, it's called The Culture of Disbelief. You think about it. We, more than any other time in, in Earth's history, have a culture of disbelief. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the skeptics abound. Skepticism abound. And, mm-hmm. and people who have imagination and insight are usually not believed. I, I had someone diss something I said. I wrote a piece on Job for Spectrum. Mm-hmm. And I presented what to me is clear evidence from having studied ancient Near Eastern texts in their original language, including the Bible, for that the author of Job and the divine speeches used a Numa Elish to make a very important point, and he 
he trashes the Numa English in the process, but he uses it nonetheless to make a very important point. And I showed carefully the most salient similarities in the text to prove that. And somebody who has no background in ancient Near Eastern texts and has not studied, to my knowledge, extensively uh, the, the biblical and ancient Near Eastern languages, uh, basically just said, I find the comparisons unconvincing. No reason given, no, uh, no careful uh, elaboration and uh, uh, no analysis. analysis. No analysis. Um, if, if he had turned that in as a paper for me, he would have gotten docked on his grade. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and this person is an educator and academic. <laughs> Your face. <laughs> and I, I was like, uh, okay, that's very interesting. Um, but this is the age of unbelief. If I can't see it, and I didn't come up with it, and I didn't see it in the first place, it isn't so. It's, it isn't anymore, we need observable evidence, scientific method. It's, I need to have observed it myself. The Missouri complex, you could say. I need to see. That's the culture of disbelief. The opposite end of that is what? Naively believing everything. Gullibility. So you have these two extremes in society, the gullible and the, and the um, uh, skeptics. And it becomes almost a honed science on either side. On the one side, my students throw up their hands when they don't know what to do with a, te a question that I've asked and said, well, we can't really understand God in his ways. <laughs> that's that's un unbelief, but it also makes sounds good because they've heard it all their lives. And the gullible say, you just take it by faith. That's the same thing as saying, we can't understand God in his ways. You just take it by faith. That's the gullible side. So the two sides actually can come together and be actually one side. And that's something we haven't been willing to recognize. So um, when... That, that's a really important point. That yeah. really is bringing those two pieces together because there is those components, you know, where we have faith, complete faith like little children on one side. And, but then we also have our Lord that's very clear. He tells us, Old Testament, New Testament, there are some things that you are just not supposed to understand. And that's just how it is. So. But we, we abuse those when we say we can't understand God in our way, so we aren't going to, to process things in our mind. We're not going to wrestle with things in our mind until we understand them, because the Bible clearly also commands us to understand God. I mean, yes, there are some things we can't. But where we can, we are required to. And, and so uh, there's these, these uh, components that we need to look at. Uh, look at, um, starting with verse 24, the, this question, How long will you keep us in suspense? <laughs> Tell us if you are the Messiah. Of course, they want him to state, I am the Messiah, so that they can arraign him before the Romans, deprive him of his authority, and crucify him. That's their goal. It's not because they want to believe in him. They want to put him to death. Yeah. Yeah. But they, they, they ask him, directly tell us 
And Jesus said, I did tell you, but you did not believe. believe. Look at my works. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. Believe my works. Now that's observable evidence that they have the right to look at. And they can all see it. All they have to do is interview a few people that Jesus healed. Like they just did. <laughs> With the blind and man. And the blind man. <laughs> a couple of chapters, or last chapter. Mm-hmm. Jesus then says to them again, I and the Father are one. And they pick up stones to stone him. So Jesus says, verse 37, Do you not believe me? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. Okay, here it is. If I don't do the works of my Father, don't believe me. This is not an issue. You can walk away from here. Why are you hounding me all the time? <laughs> but if I do them, even though you do not believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. He says it again. And they try to seize him. Let's go to chapter 11. And what I'm going to do, we're going to do this in two levels. Okay. This week, we're not going to read it because we don't have time. Okay. You know the story. Lazarus dies. Uh, Lazarus becomes ill. Martha and Mary send word to Jesus. Our brother is sick. They expect Jesus to appear almost immediately and heal him. Jesus stays away. Waits three day, two day, two more days, and then starts back, which takes him another day. Gets there on the fourth day. He's dead. He's buried. Mar- Martha and Mary are just grief stricken. Lord, if you'd been here, he would. Our brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus doesn't deny that. He just says, "Take me to where he is." Goes to where he is. And uh, they come, and Jesus is, is weeping with them. And verse 38, came to the tomb, and he says, take away the stone. And Martha says, Lord, I love the King James Version, he stinketh. (laughs) (laughs) The body stinketh. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted everybody to hear. He's dead, right? Got it? He's dead. Why is that? He wasn't that far away. He, as soon as Jesus had word, he could have gone before Lazarus right. died. But, but why does he want them to know that Lazarus is dead? He's going to bring him back to life. They won't, don't want him to think it's a hoax, you know? Well, the Jews had a belief that the spirit of the dead hovered around the dead at any yes, time yeah. coming back into them until they were dead four days. Mm, yeah. Once they were dead, after that third day, they were dead. Spirit left. And so Jesus wants everybody to hear. He stinks. <laughs> yes. He's For sure dead. he's dead. <laughs> For sure he's dead. Okay? So they take away the stone. Jesus looks up and says, Father, I thank you that you've always heard me. I know that you've always heard me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. And then he does this dramatic, loud voice. Lazarus, come out. And how he managed to come out is amazing. He was bound from head to foot in grave clothes. But he manages to hobble to the door of the tomb. 
And Jesus says, loose him and let him go. And what happens next? The Jews go and tell the Pharisees. The Jews go tell the Pharisees. The chief priests and the Pharisees call a meeting of the Sanhedrin, and they plot how to put Jesus to death. Why? I want to talk to you about unbelief and gullibility. There were two sides in Judaism. There was the side of the Pharisees, who were sticklers for the law, who kept the traditions of the Jews, and who interpreted scripture by what is called addition. Actually, there's a better term for it. Expansionism. They expanded the scriptures Mm -hmm. to include all their hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules. This is a principle they borrowed from the Babylonians, I believe. The Babylonians did that all the time with omens and laws. So they've operated on this principle of expansionism. They could read anything into the text that they thought in principle might be there and expand and expand and expand. I have to say this. I shouldn't say this, but I should. (laughs) I'm going to say it. The belief that the Bible condemns women in ministry, the belief that the Bible condemns women's ordination, is built on the principle of expansionism. It's it's expanding the text to include something it doesn't state. It doesn't include. Um, So... uh, I'm relating this to our our church today because we have two sides. And there's also middle ground, but let's go there later. So you had the Pharisees and their principle of expansionism in Scripture and their, their rather legalistic intensity of controlling people by their behaviors. And then you had the Sadducees, who were the priests, most of the priests were Sadducees. And the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. They were the culture of disbelief. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. Why? Never seen it. <laughs> you know, we buried someone last week. Haven't seen them walking around. I'm sure there were other reasons. But they did not believe And they tended not to want to believe miracles either as much as the Pharisees. Today we would call them the liberals and the conservatives. So Jesus is put to death when he does his crowning act that pulls the rug right out from under the Sadducees. This is, this is very important because Jesus is the third option in this two-sided scenario. On the one hand, he rubs the Pharisees the wrong way because he flaunts their rules. And on the other hand, the Sadducees leave him alone. They kind of find him a curiosity. They kind of maybe even like what he does time to time. But when he confronts their sacred cows, which he does by this crowning act of his divinity, this crowning testimony that he is God when he raises a man who's been dead four days to life. 
He knows what it's going to bring. Because it took both the Sadducees and the Pharisees in agreement to take Jesus to the cross. What is the lesson for us? And I'll tell you why this is very close to home to me. I get along very well with the liberals until I dare to say that Job is a real person. Because then that brings up their fears. This is back to fear. This brings up their fears that I'm really siding with all of those who say that there's a six-day creation week. Which I also believe. And on the other side, I hold ordination credentials from the Pacific Union Conference, and I teach a picture of God that... Uh, rubs the wrong way for those who want to hold on to Adventist tradition without much thought. Tradition, there's the key word. And so I find myself in the middle between disbelief and tradition. Which is in a sense built on gullibility. As people who hold to tradition are pretty gullible and very open to all kinds of tangents and, and all kinds of side trips and, and things that, that really don't matter. So there we are, in the middle. And what is it that drives that whole picture, if not fear? Remember back to the sheep. Why are they willing to go with a hireling? And why are they willing to go with a thief? Because they would rather be, a, be secure, or think they're secure, which they're not with a thief, and they're not with a hireling. But they rather would think on the surface that they're secure and alleviate their fears than to go with the Good Shepherd. It's when you relate this to the Jewish nation that it becomes clear that you're dealing with two sides. And Jesus knows that. He's saying there's a side of the, the ones who go with the thief and the robbers, and there's a side of those who stay with the hireling that, and act like hirelings themselves and tend, tend to uh, see themselves as slaves of God instead of his children or his friends. But I'm the good shepherd. Both those other sides leave the sheep vulnerable or take them to destruction. I came in my have life. I know I know this is this is pretty deep and, and I haven't clarified it well. And, and for the reason that I I'm only just started thinking this way to uh, yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I, it takes me it takes me years sometimes to to really really carefully hone an idea. So you're my guinea pigs that get subjected <laughs> to my thinking out loud a little bit. But um, good stuff. What yeah. then is the result when we follow the traditions of men? Using that keyword tradition. What did Jesus? Or say? if we fall into into skepticism and unbelief. 
They're both kind of looking the same thing on the same side. Like, See, what, what Jesus is illustrating here, uh, I, what Jesus really is, is illustrating here in, in John 10, is that no matter what evidence I give you, you are not going to believe. This is not an issue of not enough evidence. It's all right there. This is an issue of what people do. And, and I've come to believe that you can pour on all the evidence you want. And if people don't want to believe, they're not going to. You look like you're ready to say something, Christopher. Well, no, I just think it's pretty applicable today with the election and everything, too. I mean, like, you could have, you could see people arguing, like, on social media or whatever, and that they were constantly, like, pointing information to support their candidate and to um, discredit the other candidate, and the other person would do the exact same thing on their side, and nobody would budge in their position. They kind of just stayed even more settled in their position. And so... I mean, I learned that in psychology too. That yeah, once people have their position, you don't, you don't change their position by disproving their position. Evidence doesn't work. What is it? And this is what I'm grappling with now. I haven't solved this problem, <laughs> so maybe you can help me. What is it that drives this? I mean, God made us to be rational human beings who could sit down with the evidence dispassionately. Uh, humbly and willingness to listen and find the truth. He made us that way. That's the way we're made to run. We're not running that way. Why? What is driving this? I feel like it's mostly pride. It's like pride, which then feels like competition, and it's more like people think of it as a zero-sum game. I don't like that side. I don't want to be tied to that side. That's embarrassing to be on that side so I'm going to resist that anything that looks like that side even though that person may not be on that side case in point oh I was when you said pride I thought you were referring to Satan and how he knew it was wrong but he kept going and what kept him going it was his own followers whom he had duped who wouldn't let him back out uh, uh, read Patriarchs and Prophets on that. Um, that's the scenario sheet. Or maybe it's some of the other places, Story of Redemption. <laughs> I get those pieces and put them all together, and so I have this co compiled great controversy in my head. But, um, yeah, I came back to that same point this morning. I came back through a different route. If we're afraid of being on the other side, if we're afraid of the other side, and both sides are afraid of each other. And our fears drive us. What we want is control. And humbly submitting to evidence in the broadest level, not just observable evidence, but the evidence of the Spirit. Humbly submitting to all the evidence makes us vulnerable and less secure. Because we have to go then with the weight of evidence wherever it leads. One of the reasons, I'm just going to come back to this because I have a feeling that some who will be listening to this do embrace the theory of evolution. But one of the reasons I do not believe there's enough evidence to support evolutionary theory 
is that evolutionary theory is based on forensic evidence. And I didn't know this until a biologist told me. <laughs> I would never have gone this route to ever say that if a biologist hadn't told me. But a biologist told me the only evidence we have is dead evidence, it's therefore forensic. If we had empirical evidence, we would have species at all, changing into other species at all levels. Yeah, I took a class on that and with Brian Ness, and there's the evidence they have is just, it's not, it's not there, but they keep fueling it. If, and it's fueled by a dogma. It has become a dogma that we have to defend at all costs. Because if we, the alternative is to believe like the fundamentalists and we can't afford exactly. to be on their side. Exactly. And, and that's what fuels us, this fear. This fear being driving us. And we got to therefore have control and power. And once we stop power, we don't look at evidence. Not really. We might pretend to. We might claim we do. But we don't really look at it. We don't follow the evidence really because we don't look at all the evidence. And we don't ask all the questions that should be asked. And that's the root of pride right there. Power. To, give, to get to the truth, we have to give up the power. The basis of truth is humility. And you have there, you have the Sadducees nailed, and you have the Pharisees nailed. Because both sides had huge doses of pride. So, the religious right is in the fear of the religious left, and their goal is to control everybody and make everybody righteous. And the religious and the not so religious left that is comprised of some some Christians and some atheists are driven by an equal, if not even greater fear of the religious right and what they're going to do. And so they seek control based on partial evidence. And the way out of fear, our time is up. Isn't it, isn't it in James? This is a perfect love kiss, huh? John. John, First sorry. John. First John, yeah. John. First, sorry, John. First John, yeah. First John 4. Perfect love casts out fear. Isn't that what we're always missing when we argue with one another? And what, how does Jesus confront that fear? He goes to the cross. He says, let, let them have me. That's not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing that can happen is that I lose my children unnecessarily. I'm willing to die for them. So they might see Satan unmasked and see this fear conquered because no fear is going to keep me from the cross. The Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Chapter 10. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's good this time of year to remind ourselves that when Jesus laid down his life for us, it was not just at the cross that he laid down his life for us first at the, at the foundation of the world when he made the decision to do it. They had this long history of waiting, agonized waiting, knowing that this would be the end. 
and yet the beginning. And again, he laid down his life when he became an infant in a feeding trough in a place where animals were. Thank you that he has given us such a wonderful antidote to fear, the willingness to lay down our lives, the willingness to be willing and humbly look at all the evidence and to follow that evidence where it leads. Thank you that you've been with us and that you have shown us your Holy Spirit and its work in us. May he continue to lead us through the evidence to all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.